0: Shalom, this is Rabbi Talmud Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you commentary on Parashah number 47. Re, which means see, also means to empathize. This is Devarim, Deuteronomy 1126 through 1617. The first phrase I thought of uh, when I began thinking about this parashah was, uh, quote, when the cats away, the mice will play, unquote. And sadly, this concept applies to humankind, and God is fully aware of our human nature and free choice, both of which He endowed us. If it were not for Yeshua's sacrifice, we would be destined to follow our human nature throughout our lives with no hope of ever being able to overcome it in favor of what I call a Torah nature. By way of Yeshua's sacrifice, we have the means to overcome our human nature and choose to follow God's commands and laws. This parasha brings this reality to the fore. So how does the aforementioned phrase apply to this parasha? And the answer is that the people were now going to phase into an agricultural life as a society. They would no longer be living in such close proximity to the tabernacle. Instead of being provided manna, they would plant and harvest. They would have to take on more responsibility and their worship would be modified. They would also encounter the paganistic practices of the Canaanites, which, if not completely destroyed, would be a constant temptation. God and Moshe were well aware of this. God knew they would assimilate in time and suffer God's punishments for their defiance. Moshe emphasized the importance of living as God's holy people, with a focus on justice and righteousness. Unfortunately, as the people moved into the land and away from the close proximity to the tabernacle, the Israelites, to an extent, got away with doing some things according to what each thought was right. Moshe addresses this in chapter twelve, eight: Quote, you will not do things the way we do them here today, where everyone does whatever in his own opinion seems right. Because you haven't arrived at the rest and inheritance which Adonai, your God, is giving you, unquote. Canaanites offered sacrifices at several places. But as a separate people, God's people, the Israelites were instructed to go to a specific place, quote, where Adonai your God will put his name. He will choose it from all your tribes, and you will seek out that place, which is where he will live and go there. All of the sacrifices, offerings, tithes, and firstborn of cattle and sheep were to be taken to that one specific place to be designated by Adonai. He repeats this command at least three times. As the people worshiped God in presenting their tithes, their offerings, and their sacrifices, they were to rejoice in fellowship as they ate together at the sanctuary. This joy was as they included friends and family in thanking God for His provision. Even male and female slaves were to be included along with the Levites who were to share in the people's blessings. This is an important point to keep in mind. When we diminish in our tithes and offerings, we diminish the benefits to the synagogue and our blessings. We don't share in our tithes and offerings with the Levites as it was during the sacrificial paradigm, but the concept is the same. Our tithes and offerings are to be given with a joyful heart. A test from God's Israel's, of God of Israel's love for him was a false prophet. Even if the false prophet made an accurate prediction, if he or she encouraged any sort of idolatry, they were to be put to death. Chapter 13 begins with, quote, everything I am commanding you, you are to take care to do. Do not add to it or subtract from it, That applies through the ages. That's even listed in the book of Revelation for those who say this was only for the Jews and that Jesus did away with all of these laws and commands. He did not. He is God. He would not do away with his own commands and statutes and laws. After addressing false prophets, God gets very personal addressing family members and or friends who try to entice us to serve other gods, which includes a plethora of actions and behaviors, many of which we might even think are associated with idolatry. We might not even think about it. These people at the time were to be killed, as well with the individual to whom the person tried to entice, placing his hands on the guilty one first, followed by the hands of the people. The individual was then stoned to death. Although we don't perform such acts of justice now, God will exact his judgment on anyone who falls into this category of adding to or subtracting from the word of God. And anyone who chooses to live in continued rebellion of God's Torah and encourages others to follow suit. Love for friends and family must not take precedence over exclusive devotion to God. Chapter 14 includes regulations for personal hygiene and other ways in which we are to treat our bodies. Unlike the pagan societies around the Israelites and some of the practices we see in our own country today, we are not to mutilate ourselves when mourning. Although not mentioned in this Padasha, We are not to tattoo our bodies, and men are not to trim their beards at the corners, like the heathen societies and idolatrous priests did at the time. The dietary laws are listed, and we can observe by examining them that there are definitely health benefits associated with following them. For example, pork products, especially liver, frequently carry hepatitis E, which can cause severe complications, and even death in vulnerable populations. That's according to WebMD, by the way. According to Healthline.com, quote, one of the most surprising risks associated with pork, one that's received remarkably little airtime, is MS, that's multiple sclerosis, a devastating autoimmune condition involving the central nervous system. This robust link has been known since at least the 1980s, unquote. There's also a connection between eating pork and liver cancer and cirrhosis. Another adverse on health from eating pork is Yersiniosis bacteria, which causes 35 deaths and almost 170,000 cases of food poisoning every year. The main culprit here is uncooked pork. The acute symptoms are bad enough, including fever, bloody diarrhea, and pain, but the long-term consequences including facing 47 times higher risk of reactive arthritis, which is a type of inflammatory joint disease triggered by infection, And this infection can also raise raise the risk of Graves' disease in which there is excessive thyroid production. Now I mentioned some of these general adverse health reactions of eating pork, well done or not, to make the point that God knows what He's doing. Eating pork, shellfish, and fish without fins and scales present humans with significant health risks. The aforementioned health risks which one may suffer from eating pork are significant. But I submit that even if we didn't have this information, the fact that God prohibits eating the foods described in chapter 14 should be enough for true believers to accept. At the end of the day, we're to strive to be a holy people, spiritually and physically. After all, our bodies are the only ones we get, and we cannot carry out our purpose in life to glorify God and make His name known among the nations without a body. This fact should stimulate contemplation for those who disregard optimal health practices. At the end of the narrative on forbidden foods we see another seemingly unrelated command not to boil a young animal in its mother's milk. Traditional Jews interpret this as a prohibition against eating meat and dairy together. However, I submit that this is a command to be compassionate. This was also a pagan practice and was considered as a delicacy. This command was to reaffirm the need for God's people to remain separate and holy and not assimilate in any way with the practices of the pagans around them. To expand on the specifics and concept of the dietary laws, there is no use of the word kosher in the Bible reference for food. Furthermore, there is no specific set of rules that are consistent with the rabbinic system of Kashrut, which includes forbidden and permitted foods the preparation and the combination thereof. It's enough in God's economy to follow the dietary laws as He commands, not adding to or subtracting from, as I mentioned earlier. Now if someone chooses to add the cash root system of eating without violating God's Torah, there's no harm. However, to teach it as commanded by God is forbidden and we must take care to evaluate why we choose to follow this tradition if this is the case. Chapter 15 covers the command to have a Shemitah at the end of every seven years. God provides all the instructions we need to observe it. It was specifically commanded for the Israelites to observe in the land, but I submit the lands of the world need a break every seven years and observing it outside Israel honors God in the land. It will be of benefit to take the time to research the Shemitah in detail because every year that is not observed as God commands, increasing calamities occur worldwide, major ones. Researching what has occurred worldwide during Shemitah years will reveal this to be true. According to the Jewish Study Bible, 1999, quote, the blend of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the most remarkable section of this festival or calendar, unquote. Passover was initially a separate observance, generally celebrated by each family or clan. It did not require a sacrifice at the sanctuary, so it was not included among the three pilgrimage festivals. Instead, it was distinguished by the slaughter of a sheep or goat in the doorway of the house, with the blood applied to the doorway of the house, to protect the family from the plague of death, and to demarcate the house as that of an Israelite family. However. The restriction found in Deuteronomy, we find a restriction of sacrifice to a single sanctuary which prohibited local observance of Pesach. Now the observance was redirected to the central sanctuary. It became one of the pilgrimage festivals. Interestingly, the older blood ritual in the doorway of private residences, which was the defining act of the original Pesach observance, is no longer mentioned. The new observance is merged with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This has significant import, most easily recognized by Messianic Jews. The change in the way God commanded the observance of Pesach alludes to Yeshua, who became our Paschal Lamb. His sacrifice was sufficient, a complete Olah offering acceptable to God. I submit this is the reason, at least in part, why the observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was merged with the observance of Pesach. Most traditional Jewish calendars list the seven days of Unleavened Bread as days of Passover, with an eighth day listed arrived at in the priestly version of the calendar, where Pesach is one day plus six days of Unleavened Bread plus one day for the Holy Convocation. However, we're commanded to celebrate Pesach on the evening of the 14th of Aviv, and the feast of unleavened bread begins immediately following Pesach after sundown. We eat matzah during our Pesach observance as we start our observance according to Leviticus 23, 5 through 8, which says, quote, In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month between sundown and complete darkness, comes Pesach for Adonai. On the fifteenth day of the same month is the festival of matzah, or unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat matzah. On the first day you are to have a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. Bring an offering made by fire to Adonai for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. We must always strive to rightly divide the word of God and separate it from the traditions of men. All right, our Haftarah. This is out of Isaiah 54. <clears throat> and this week's haftarah is the third of a series of seven Haftarot of Consolation. These seven Haftarot commence on the Shabbat following Tishbyat and continue until Rosh Hashanah. God addresses the inconsolable and storm-tossed Jerusalem. He tells her that although he turned his face from her for a time, she will be redeemed through his grace. She is assured God will never be angry or rebuke her again. Jerusalem will be laid with precious stones. Her children will be, quote, disciples of the Lord, unquote, and will enjoy abundant peace. Any weapon engineered against her will fail. And I need to qualify that by saying it also says in the book of Revelation that those who will become the bride of Yeshua is not the church and it is not Christ. It is the bride of Yeshua. This bride is defined by God and Yeshua himself in Romans 1 through 3, John chapter 14, and in Revelation, the sevenfold witness, that is, seven times it states, a true believer is one who carries the testimony of Yeshua, that is, becoming reconciled to God through Yeshua's sacrifices, and guards the commands of Hashem. That means following his Torah, not the traditions of men. His Torah, his instructions. God, through Isaiah in our Haftarah, invites the thirsty to acquire, quote-unquote, water. Namely, those who are thirsty for spirituality should study the quenching words of Torah. He promises the nation an everlasting covenant, similar to that made with King David. And this also is an allusion to the Messiah, David, or David's descendant, who will be revered by all the nations of the world. Our Brit Kaddishahs out of 1 Corinthians 5, Shaul, or Paul, tells the Messianic community at Corinth, they weren't Christians, that when he told them not to associate with those who practice sexual immorality, greed, thievery, idol worship, and the like, he was not referring to the people outside the city or to leave the world altogether. He makes the point closer to home referring to those in our own families and communities as mentioned in the Padisha he tells us that we should not even eat with those individuals we are to use discernment and courage when we come into contact with those who profess to be our brothers in faith family or friends we're to be strong enough to explain why we can't associate with them or this may be likened to wallowing with pigs guilty by association of course if someone wants to meet with us to learn about our faith and ask questions about our god We can certainly meet with them and we should. God will judge those outside of his Torah. It is not for us to judge. We are responsible for rebuking those within our community, our family, our circle of friends, according to God's Torah. You don't pass it off to the rabbi or somebody else. This is also addressed in different contexts in 2 and 3 John. We're not to turn a blind eye to injustice or antinomian behavior within our families or communities. If we're not bold enough to confront such people head-on, we should support those who are. Lobbyists, organizations that strive to correct such problems, pray for strength and courage to become active ourselves. We should not and cannot always depend on others to correct anti-Torah behaviors and practices. We have a personal responsibility to defend our God and His Torah, just as Yeshua did throughout His life on earth. He did not shy away from defending God's Torah, but he did it with compassion, just as we must learn in our approach to others. Shabbat Shalom. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to address or subjects you would like me to research and present podcasts on in the future, please go to our website at rabdavis.org and click on the Ask the Rabbi link and post your information, and I'll be happy to get back with you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please feel free to share it with others. May God bless you in your Torah study. Amen. Shalom.